This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Good evening, friends. Have uh, the sniffles that uh, just developed probably within the last couple of hours. And you know, there's so much paranoia around uh, these days regarding the swine flu pandemic that's supposed to be coming this way. Something wicked this way comes. And uh, so, you know, it's always in the back of my mind, particularly because I was in a pizza joint on the weekend and a gentleman in the table next to me began sneezing uncontrollably. And of course, now we're supposed to sneeze into, uh, you know, our sleeve. And uh, he didn't even bother to put his hand in front of his mouth. And people were just cringing all over the place. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. So... You know, part of me thinks that this whole swine flu thing, of course, is a major psychological uh, warfare experiment and, uh, you know, create the disease so that you can offer the cure. And uh, the cure, of course, supposedly the vaccine, which might actually be worse than the disease itself, right? So anyway, I just, uh, I just, uh, I I get the sniffles and then I start to, uh, my mind mind starts to race and uh, it's really an indication of maybe how successful this PSYOP is. And I'm as uh, gullible as the next guy, perhaps. All right, what are we now? Week six into our wonderful run here at AM740, The Conspiracy Show. Good to have you aboard. Hope you're well. I'm going to speak with a filmmaker in the second hour of the program. Now, get this. She made this film because she wants to draw attention to what she says something that could change the world. Well, maybe we've heard that before, maybe not, but what she's talking about are crop circles. We think crop circles, maybe we think of the uh, the Mel Gibson movie, M. Night Shyamalan, uh, Signs. 
you might be interested to know that uh, crop circles aren't simply a phenomena that's isolated to uh, parts of, uh, of the UK. They're very popular over there. They're very common. But we have them right in our own backyard uh, up in Georgetown every year. And we're getting to that time of year now, of course, when the crops, uh, of course, these are geometric, in- incredibly intricate geometrical designs that appear in, in wheat fields and corn fields and various grain fields. But up in Georgetown, they have uh, some amazing crop circles. The question is, what are these crop circles? Can they be explained as some uh, natural phenomena or are they uh, an indication that contact with other civilizations is, clo- are, 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 is, is, is imminent? Are they uh, a warning? We'll find out when uh, Suzanne Taylor joins us in the second hour, and her film is called What on Earth? Inside the Crop Circle Mystery. Not sure if uh, you're a fan of Congressman Ron Paul down in the States. I happen to be one. If I was an American citizen, I would have voted for Ron Paul, the good doctor from Texas. Who, uh, who seems to have something that is in short supply, not only in the Beltway down in Washington, but around the world, and that's common sense. And if he's got a new book out called End the Fed. And, of course, uh, you're probably familiar that he, he's launched this campaign. He wants to audit the Federal Reserve. And then, once it's audited, he wants to, to get rid of it. A lot of uh, you out there that uh, are interested in who's really pulling the strings and uh, stage managing events around the world, you look at the Federal Reserve as sort of a, a an instrument of the New World Order, I'm guessing. Think about the power of the Fed and other central banks. Probably you could argue more powerful than the government or the president or the prime minister. The Fed, for example, could determine how much you pay for your car payments whether you keep your house or not, whether you keep your job. That's the kind of power they have. But uh, not too many people aware, perhaps, of the rather nefarious origins of the Federal Reserve and really the central banking system. We're going to discuss that over the, uh, the next uh, hour in part, but uh, we're going to discuss some other things with a ra- rather remarkable gentleman who uh, I, th- I think really wrote the seminal work about the origins of the Federal Reserve. It's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. But he's also, uh, of course, written on many other important issues, including health. A rather important uh, book also came out back in 1974 that he penned called World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B-17 and... uh, Aside from being quite a remarkable uh, author, he's a film producer, a political lecturer, and uh, a libertarian, and the founder of an organization that we're going to spend some time talking about as well, called Freedom Force International, because this might be our way out, our way out from under the, uh, the boot heel, if you will, of the New World Order and those that wish to enslave us, utilizing instruments such as the Federal Reserve and the whole fiat money system. Of course, I'm talking about Mr. G. Edward Griffin, and a great pleasure to welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Edward, how are you? 
I'm fine, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, before we, we launch into your organization, and I do want to learn all about that, I think it's very important. Uh, let me just get a, a quick take on, uh, on Ron Paul's efforts to audit the Fed. Now, first of all, what would that involve? How would you audit the Federal Reserve, and why would that be important to audit the Federal Reserve? Well, Richard, I have some mixed emotions on that issue. I realize that the audit the Fed movement is very popular. Uh, just about everybody and their uncle would, you know, sign on to that, because what's, uh, what's wrong with auditing the Fed? Uh, we should audit everything that the government does, actually. Turns out, of course, that the Fed is not a government agency, but we'll talk about that later. It's perceived as a government agency. I think that the Fed doesn't need to be audited. I think it needs to be abolished. But then uh, that's hard nose, you know, that's hardcore, is because I, I'm sure that if the Fed were to be audited, if there was a bill to be passed, they'd probably set up a commission similar to the Warren Commission to uh, you know, investigate the JFK assassination or another commission to investigate 9-11. And we know how those commissions go. They're handpicked um, by some of the worst people uh, you can possibly imagine. And uh, although the documents that come out are very thick and have a lot of facts in them, a big thick index and so forth, it, it turns out to be a whitewash. And so I don't really have much confidence in a government audit of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, but nevertheless, I still think it's a good idea because uh, from a public relations standpoint, it's a means of getting more people to think about the Fed. Uh, they don't even think about it uh, unless there's an issue such as let's audit it. You know, the people in my acquaintance, they, the Fed, what's that? They, oh, yes, yeah, oh, banks, oh, sure. And they don't know anything about it. And so, and the idea that something needs to be audited does plant the idea that maybe there's some chicanery going on. What if it was chaired by Ron Paul? If it was chaired by Ron Paul, it would be an excellent committee, but I think that there's about a chance of that as a snowball in the 80s um, because uh, the, the banks are very, very powerful politically. They have a lot of... Uh, you know, friends in Washington that would pretty much cover their, their action. Nevertheless, we do notice that the Federal Reserve is resisting this audit the Fed movement quite strenuously, because if anything did uh, develop in the way of an honest audit, the thing that Ron Paul is really looking for is the names of the people who got all those billions and trillions of dollars and to find out what the deals were. And I think that, um, uh, you know, if that were to be exposed, the game would be over because people would realize that this was a, really a good old boys club operation and that none of that bailout or stimulus stuff uh, really had anything to do with helping the economy or the American people. It all had to do with helping, uh, helping your friends in the banking industry. So I think that would be beneficial to, to, to have people realize how corrupt the system is. Then we can move on to my favorite step, which would be to abolish the Fed. I think that's how Ron Paul is thinking of it also. G. Edward Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve, here on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Get on board, and we'll take questions and comments at 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740, and toll-free from anywhere, one 866 1-866-740-4740, 1-866-740-4740. I, uh, I, I mentioned off the top, uh, Edward, that, uh, that the Federal Reserve probably more 
powerful than the president and uh, the elected government. Is that a fair assessment? You know, I think that's a very fair assessment. As a matter of fact, it's uh, quite a coincidence that you should mention that because about two hours ago, I was sitting uh, right here at my desk talking with a, uh, a Hollywood producer who wants to produce a film based upon the theme in my book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. And we were kicking around the idea of a central theme that would make an interesting uh, plot line. And I suggested, I said, you know, one of the things that's the biggest shock of all is to realize that the Fed was created in 1913, supposedly, so the government could control the banks. But what really happened, and it's being played out now, we can see that it's the other way around. The banks are controlling the government. And that's just what you suggested there. And I think if people could be, uh, if they could realize the reality of that statement, it would, uh, you know, it could lead to some very profound reforms in our banking system. All right. We'll uh, take a quick time out, come back. We'll talk a little bit about the origin of the Fed, how it came into being, who owns the Fed, what kind of power they wield. Do they wield the power, uh, for example, to create? A depression, the current recession, do they do it deliberately? And then, hopefully, we'll, uh, we'll get some positive information on what we can do about it. G. Edward Griffin, my guest, stay with us. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and a secret proceedings. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740. Four seven forty. Listen closely to these words. Some people think that the Federal Reserve Banks are United States government institutions. They are, in fact, private monopolies which prey upon the people of these United States for the benefit of themselves and their foreign customers, foreign and domestic speculators and swindlers and rich and predatory, predatory money lenders. Quote, end quote. Those words spoken by the Honorable... Louis McFadden, who was chairman of the House Banking and Currency Committee in the 1930s, essentially, he stood up in the House and wanted to uh, charge those people behind the Fed with treason. And I think, if memory serves, uh, Louis McFadden died a rather mysterious death. Some suspect he may have been poisoned not too long after making that speech. G. Edward Griffin, my guest, the author of the uh, really a very very important uh, work if you if you haven't read it i really urge you to go out and buy the creature from jekyll island uh never bef- never before uh, i think has it been more relevant uh edward uh the the fed really has assumed some sweeping new powers in the last year and uh, we can talk a little bit about that but first uh who owns the fed do we have can you name names who owns it well yes that There are several ways to answer that question. On the surface, it's clear that the Fed is owned by the member banks uh, because there are stocks issued when a bank comes into the Federal Reserve System 
And uh, technically, the, the Fed is a corporation. It was created by Congress, and it has stock. Uh, so on the surface, it looks like the, the banks are owned by, I mean, the Federal Reserve is owned by the banks. But when you look at the, the power of the stock, you, you suddenly realize that this is not normal stock. This is not a normal corporation where stockholders control the, uh, the, the company. In a normal corporation, you have voting rights, and you can, you can vote, and you can select your executive officers, and you can discipline them, you can fire them. You can indirectly uh, you know, bring in some other board of directors, and you can affect policy. In the Federal Reserve System, there's no such thing. It's all determined from the top down, and the stockholders have no voice whatsoever in, in what goes on with the Federal Reserve. In a normal corporation, if you have stock, you can sell it. And you can't sell them. The banks cannot sell their stock in the Federal Reserve System, so they don't really own anything in the in the traditional sense of the word. What we have here, Richard, is a hybrid. This is a, a very strange uh, creature, indeed. It, uh, it it looks like it's a corporation, and it's partly a corporation, but it's not really. It looks like it's a government agency, and it's partly it has some governmental powers, but it's not a government agency at all. The power it has is the power to... Um, to put people into prison if uh, they violate the rules that the Fed has promulgated. So, boy, you, you look at that, and most people would say, well, if, if there is a group that can put me in prison for violating their rules, it must be government, right? Well, wrong. What actually happened is that the, the banks got together back in, in 1913, and actually we can talk about this later, but they gathered on Jekyll Island, which is the reason I called my book The Creature from Jekyll Island, and they drafted a cartel agreement. The Federal Reserve System is really a cartel. It's no different than an oil cartel or a sugar cartel, a banana cartel. This one happens to be a banking cartel, and they drafted a cartel agreement, and then they were shrewd enough to go to Washington and convince the congressmen there and the senators to vote that agreement into law. Well, now the cartel agreement has the force of government law behind it, and everybody must obey it, but that still doesn't make it a government agency. So what they have really is it's a private group of, uh, it, well, I should say it's a cartel, a private cartel of privately held banks. They're all clustered together uh, in this group, and they determine their own rules and regulations. They're self-regulating. They set banking policy, monetary policy, interest rates, money supply, the whole thing. And then to cap it off, they were given the power to create the nation's money. And people have these Federal Reserve notes in their pockets, and they think that's government money, but it's not. If you look at the top, it says Federal Reserve note. The money of this country is actually issued by the private banks. And uh, it's an amazing uh, a coup d'etat that they pulled off while nobody was really looking, or if they were looking, they didn't understand it. Congressman McFadden was one of the few in Washington at that time that did understand it, but of course he was ignored and hooted down, and, and it's too bad because he could have saved us a lot of trouble in, in the years since then. As I, as I understand it, it was, it was voted on in Congress uh, to bring in the Federal Reserve uh, during the Christmas break when most uh, members were away and it was all sort of done very quickly and, and, and rushed through rather secretly. Well, yes, it was done during the Christmas break period or just before then when most of the uh, congressmen and, and senators had already departed. They had gone home for the Christmas period. But the truth of the matter is that had it been 
um, the vote had been at some other time, it still would have been uh, pushed into a law because most of those uh, politicians at the time were on record as supporting it. But the reason they chose, I believe, the reason they chose the Christmas session is so that they didn't want any debate. They didn't want anybody like McFadden standing up and putting anything into the congressional record opposing the bill. So that was the reason, I think, for uh, doing it at that Christmas session. The, the, uh, the gentleman that uh, met in secret on Jekyll Island, can you give us some names? Oh, yes. Um, I need to back up just a bit, Richard, on this, because, you know, the Federal Reserve System was sold to the American people in those days as a um, piece of legislation that was supposed to, uh, the phrase they used in those days was, break the grip of the money trust. That was a, like a political slogan at the time. Americans were very concerned over the uh, concentration of economic power into the hands of a few, uh, you know, a few institutions, banks and uh, insurance companies and, and um, you know, stock brokerage houses. And, and so the legislation was supposed to break the grip of that group and uh, put the power into the hands of, uh, of the people. Well, it turns out that the people that wrote the Federal Reserve Act were the epitome of the money trust. These were the wealthiest people in the world. And the, uh, considering that the, the banks and the companies that which they represented, they represented one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world. And those are the people that wrote the bill that supposedly was going to break their own power. And so that's the reason that this meeting that took place uh, did so on Jekyll Island. It's because they wanted to uh, conceal who was writing the Federal Reserve Act. And they, they went to this meeting on, General, on, on Jekyll Island under conditions of great secrecy. They denied that they were going. They denied that they had been there. Uh, when they assembled on uh, the private railroad car that belonged to uh, Senator Nelson Aldridge, they arrived at the train station one at a time, not to be seen together, not to talk to newspaper reporters. And even when they got on the private railroad car, they were told to address each other by first names only, not last names. And two of these men even abandoned their first names and used code names in the privacy of Senator Aldrich's car. We find out later that the reason for that is because they were concerned that the servants on board the car might find out who all these people were. And if the servants talked about it and the word leaked out in that way, well, then, of course, the, um, you know, the trick would have been out and open that uh, here were the wealthiest people in the world drafting a banking bill, and so they had to hide that fact. So here, we're ready now for the, ne- for the men. Uh, there were seven of them. The first one I've already mentioned, he was the fellow with the um, private railroad car. And that was Senator Nelson Aldridge. Uh, he was the Republican whip in the Senate at that time, uh, the most powerful politician in Washington, second to the president. Uh, he was chairman of the National Monetary Commission, which was the special committee of Congress, which, which was to draft the Federal Reserve Act. He was a business associate of J.P. Morgan. He was father-in-law to John D. Rockefeller, Jr., and he traveled in, in those circles. Was, oh, wait, of course, uh, just the kind of guy that's going to break the grip of the money trust. Edward, let me uh, just get you to hold on, and we'll reveal the other six that were on Jekyll Island back in 1910. Let's uh, come back and pick it up on the other side with Edward Griffin, the Federal Reserve. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
Edward Griffin uh, with us, the author of Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. Uh, and I'm uh, sorry to interrupt there, um, Edward, but I sort of was a little late uh, getting into the break. So let me, uh, l- let's get back to the, uh, the other uh, six uh, individuals that assembled on, uh, on Jekyll Island. Which is it's off the coast of Georgia, I believe, is it not? Well, that's correct. Yes. Okay, so uh, you mentioned uh, Nelson Aldrich, uh, Senator Nelson Aldrich, and mm-hmm. um, just in the interest of, of of getting to some other information, let's just whip through some of the other uh, individuals. Yeah, well, the second one on on my list is uh, Abraham Piat Andrew. Uh, he was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury at the time, uh, which doesn't tell you much about him because um, he's not really a politician. He comes from a banking family. And that's the reason he was U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, very strong in banking. Frank Vanderlip was there. He was the uh, president of the National City Bank of New York. That was the most powerful of all the banks at that time, uh, representing the uh, interests of William Rockefeller and uh, the International Investment Banking House of Kuhn Loban Company. Uh, Henry Davison was on board. He was the senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Uh, Charles Norton was there, uh, the president of J.P. Morgan's First National Bank of New York, another one of the giants. Uh, Benjamin Strong was there. He was the head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company, and uh, he actually became the first head of the Federal Reserve after it was formed. And uh, finally, Paul Warburg was there. He was a full partner in uh, Kuhn Loeb and Company. Uh, he was a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France, and all of this time, he maintained a very close uh, liaison with his brother, Max Warburg, who was head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. And now there was your group. And these are the guys who, either with their personal financial power or the power of the firms, which I just mentioned, added up to control of about one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world. You mentioned Rothschild, and, and Meyer Rothschild's famous quote, of course, is, let me control the nation's money supply, and I care not who makes the laws. And, and that's certainly a truth, isn't it? Is it not? Do we know whether any of these individuals were Skull and Bones members? I don't think so. Okay. No, this goes back... Uh, well, I'm, I'm not aware of that, no. Uh, I don't know. I know this is a very complex matter, uh, and uh, and it's important to understand, though, and no one can explain it better than you, Ed, and that is uh, the, the idea that the, the Federal Reserve can, can basically create money out of thin air, and uh, I guess when that's loaned to the U.S. government, it's, I mean, it's, as, as soon as it's brought into creation, it is basically debt. Uh, is, am I oversimplifying it? I probably am, but explain how the mechanism of the Fed actually works. Well, you are oversimplifying it in, in mechanics, but not in principle. It, when you, uh, you go through all the, uh, the pulleys, cogs, and wheels, and you come out to the end of it, they still made, created money out of nothing, but it's done in a very uh, complex way. So, you know, if you want to get a degree in, in banking and uh, money, you've got to you know, open the textbook and learn all of these uh, mechanisms. But, the, but just to understand the system... As a as a voter or a taxpayer, uh, you don't really know, have to know how the wheels turn. Just know that they do create money out of nothing. And I'll give you just a little example. Um, let see. Remember that this cartel, the Federal Reserve System cartel, is in partnership with the federal government. The the congressman voted that into law, and uh, so now we've got a, this creature that's half government and half private. We don't know what to call it, um, but. There are two groups there that benefit from this. The politicians benefit and the bankers benefit. 
and they both benefit through this mechanism of how money is created. So let's walk through that very briefly. Um, it's fascinating. The process starts uh, with the political side. Uh, let's say Congress needs another billion dollars today. They don't want to tax the, uh, the taxpayers directly. Uh, they don't want to raise taxes because that's very unpopular and they, they won't be reelected. So they like to spend money and uh, provide benefits so they'll be elected, but they don't want to raise taxes. So the dilemma is where do they get the money? How can they spend more without taking in the taxes? And the answer is very simple. They borrow it. And uh, so they issue bonds and treasury bills and notes, and they're basically IOUs, and they put them out there. And, of course, large numbers of people and institutions around the world step forward, and they say, well, we'll loan money to the government. They're going to pay us back, plus interest. We c they consider that to be a very sound loan. And so, um, the, uh, you know, the debts go on. And the trouble with that is that uh, 30 days later or a year later, whatever the length of the loan is, uh, the government has to pay that back plus interest. And we know historically that every time those old loans come due, the government still isn't taking in enough in taxes to cover their current expenses, so they don't have the money. So then they have to go out and float more new bonds to cover the old bonds plus the interest plus the new government spending programs. And so this thing we well recognize as the expanding national debt just gets bigger and bigger and bigger each year. Otherwise I, known as a Ponzi scheme. It, it is basically a Ponzi because nobody in Washington really ever expects to pay that back. They just expect to turn it over, roll it over, get more loans, and let the bubble get bigger and bigger. Uh, there is a way that they'll pay it back, of course, and that's when the whole bubble collapses and the economy collapses and everybody's is left wondering, what happened to my savings? What happened to my purchasing power? And then they're wiped out. That's how it's paid back. But nobody ever wants to think of that. So they, they dream that this process can go on forever. But uh, now I'm taking too long to answer this, but the point is that even though the government does borrow money from the public and from institutions, that does not create new money, because that money's already out there. People have earned it, they've saved it, and now they're, they think they're investing it in a sound investment. So no new money is made. However, there's never enough from that source. Governments spend more than they can borrow from uh, willing private lenders. Uh, and so they go now for the shortfall. There's always a shortfall. On that shortfall, they go to the Federal Reserve System, and they say, we want to borrow it from you. Now, this is where it changes. If they, let's imagine that some secretary uh, of the Treasury walks into the Federal Reserve office, and the officer says, well, come in and sit down, sir. How much money do you want to borrow today? And the officer says, well, another billion dollars today would be fine, although lately it's trillions, but it doesn't make any difference. You get the idea. Huge amounts of money. And the Federal Reserve uh, officer just clicks on his keyboard a couple of clicks, and he says, okay, you now have uh, a billion or a trillion dollars in your checking account, the government checking account. And it's done. And now the government official says, thank you very much. He goes out, and lo and behold, he checks his deposit uh, uh, level, and he, he's got a lot of money in his account, and the government can continue spending. The question arises, where did that money come from? We know where the other money came from, from the individuals and the institutions and, and other countries. It came from their savings. 
But when you come to the Federal Reserve System, the money they loaned to the government didn't come from any place. They just created it out of thin air. And it, it just springs into being at the point that loan is made. So that's a pretty good trick. They can do it. Uh, most of us, if we did it, we'd go to jail. But they can do it because the government wants them to be able to do it. Because it takes the burden off of the politician's shoulder to having to go to the taxpayer and raise taxes. This way they know that no matter how much money they want, they can always go to their friends at the Federal Reserve, their partners, I should say, at the Federal Reserve, and they will create any amount. And we've seen that recently in Washington, D.C., when uh, Congress votes for these huge uh, so-called stimulus programs and bailouts. I mean, we're talking about 12 or 13 trillion dollars. Nobody has that much money in a savings account. Most of that is coming from the Federal Reserve now, which just creates it out of thin air. So that's how the, this process starts. But if you think that's interesting, you ain't heard nothing yet. All now right. we've got to take, take a look at why the bankers are doing this and where they uh, make out on this. Let's just take, a th- um, let's say, it, uh, $1,000 of that money that was created for the government. And that winds up in the check that goes to the postal worker. He's a federal employee, and he's got a $1,000 check now. And he takes that down the street and deposits it into his private bank, into his personal checking account. Right, right. Now the money is out of that initial Federal Reserve government cycle, and now it's in the private banking cycle. And this is where it heats up. I, if I were the banker... Uh, of that, uh, the president of that bank, where this fellow deposited a thousand dollars, I could take that one thousand dollars and I could loan up to nine thousand dollars based on that single deposit. That's and the I don't fractional. Have, to have that money. That's the fractional reserve banking system. That's fractional reserve banking. So uh, for every one billion dollars that's created out of thin air for the government. By the time it gets into the commercial banking side, they create an additional $9 billion. And all of that floods into the economy as new money that did not exist previously. Now, what does that do? That, that expands the money supply at a rate much faster than goods and services uh, are expanding. And so we have this thing called inflation. Prices keep going up, up, up. But what's really happening is that the value of the money is going down, down, down. That's what we're really looking at. And so the end of that whole process is that, you know, the common man winds up paying much more for bread and gasoline and education and health care and whatever else you can think of. His, his purchasing power goes down. And it's the same as tax, a hidden taxation. He does not know that he's paying a tax because he doesn't think of it that way. He just thinks as well, it's inflation. That's some kind of a mysterious process. Inflation, it's just, well, who knows what causes inflation? Well, the fact of the matter is we do know what causes inflation. It's the expansion of the money supply at a rate faster than the expansion of goods and services, and that is all made possible by the Federal Reserve System in partnership with the federal government. All right, let's get uh, a phone call in here and welcome Glenn to The Conspiracy Show. Glenn, you're on the air with uh, Edward Griffin. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to say thank you for getting him on. Hello? All right, all right. Yes, you're, you're welcome. And your question for Edward. Hello? Yes, go ahead, Glenn. Your question for Edward Griffin, please. 
Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, thank you for getting him on, but he should be on for uh, at least two hours. But uh, I just read your book, and I was uh, totally impressed with it. And I, I, ha- I hope to see you uh, in Toronto, hopefully, in conducting a seminar. But uh, I was shocked about the, uh, the JFK assassination, that he, uh, all those things that we've believed about him uh, through the independent media are not actually true. You know, about him uh, depositing uh, 400, was it billion or million uh, U.S. notes? Oh, I've forgotten the number right now, but if you've read my book, you know that I, I do have a little different slant on that. Let me just to, to clarify, uh, uh, thank you for the call, Glenn, for those uh, not maybe connecting the dots. There is a theory that the reason that uh, JFK was uh, taken out was that he wanted to issue non-Federal Reserve money. And a little, uh, some of that was in circulation. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do know that you have a different take on that, Edward, if you wanted to explain what that was. Well, I- you know, it's it's a relatively minor issue compared to the big issue of what the Fed is doing. But uh, and it takes too long to really go into all the nitty gritties. But I will say that it's it's very tempting to think that uh, JFK was assassinated at least partly because he was making a big stand against uh, the the banking system. Uh, my own independent research of that uh, did not support that conclusion. Um, I mean, I don't. You know, want to argue with anybody about it? It really makes no difference in in the real world today. Uh, I do know that the the elitists are quite capable of assassination. I, I'm not saying that that's you know that these are the good guys or anything. But when I looked into all of the uh, claims about the issuance of the uh, of the treasury notes, uh, it it looked to me or open and shut case that it was that JFK really had nothing to do with that. He signed the executive order, but I do, I'm pretty sure he didn't write it didn't understand it, didn't read it. Uh, it was just part of some housekeeping stuff that was done. Those, those, uh, a few of those were issued. They wound up in collectors' uh, pockets, and uh, it was never meant to replace the Federal Reserve notes. And, then, and, you know, and I checked other things down. Uh, somebody uh, quoted JFK as giving a speech at Columbia University shortly before his assassination, in which he made kind of a cryptic statement. He said... Uh, I must warn the American people about their grave peril and so forth. When I thought, that's an interesting statement. I wonder what he meant by that. So I checked with Columbia University to see if I could get a transcript of the speech, see what else he said, and they wrote back. And Oh, no, actually, I talked to them on the phone. I talked to the uh, lady over there at the library and the university, and she said, well, no, JFK was never here on that date or any other date. He never gave a speech at Columbia. Uh, I said, well, okay, maybe he gave a speech at some other university on that date. So I checked around with the White House. I found out that, no, he was in the White House on that day, entertaining some ambassadors from outside the country. And every time I tried to run down, you know, nail one of the uh, facts in this myth or this legend, they all, you know, fizzled out. So I just came to the conclusion that it's an interesting story. Uh, and uh, but there's plenty else, to, plenty else to worry about. Sure, I mean there are many, there are many other reasons why JFK may have been taken out by the elites, uh, whether it was uh, oh yeah, you know, uh, oh absolutely, wanting to pull out of Vietnam, uh, etc. Oh yeah. But but prior to the, um, the 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 Federal Reserve's establishment, there were other sort of central banks in America that had a charter, and then that charter, uh, some presidents attempted to revoke that charter, and some of those presidents could have been taken out. For example, was it Andrew Jackson? who was very opposed to uh, um, uh, renewing the, the charter of the whatever it was, the Bank of America. And now there's some speculation that he may have been uh, poisoned. 
Well, it's speculation, and you know it's quite possible. It's true that Andrew Jackson uh, took on the Bank of the United States, which was the forerunner of the Federal Reserve System, and he fought them uh, right into the... He, he was responsible for, uh, for getting rid of the last uh, uh, version of the uh, Central Bank or Federal Reserve System, as before they called it that. And, uh, yeah, it was a bitter battle, uh, a bitter battle, I should say. And uh, um, the president of the banking system in those days was Nicholas Biddle. And uh, now it's clear, the history is clear, that he did everything possible to, uh, to plunge the nation into a depression just so that he could blame it on uh, President Jackson's uh, quest to get rid of the bank. Mm, he deliberately called in loans, he shortened the money supply, and he was saying, you see what happens when you, when you threaten our nice banking system? Look at the chaos. And then it was found out later that he was causing the chaos. There you go. Edward, Edward Griffin is with us. And, of course, I believe it was Jefferson who said that uh, beware the bankers are more powerful than a standing army. Back with the conspiracy show. Hang in there. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. Or toll free, 1-866-740-4740. We'll talk crop circles coming up after 12 midnight with filmmaker Suzanne Taylor. Right now, G. Edward Griffin is with us. The creature from Jekyll Island and the website I'll uh, urge you to visit is freedomforceinternational.org. Freedomforceinternational.org. And we're going to find out what that is all about. I just want to work in a quick call here from Jim. Go ahead, Jim. You're on with Ed yeah, Griffin. Um, we had a candidate running. He didn't get elected. But he said if he was elected, he would abolish the Federal Reserve System. Of course, uh, President Wilson always also had something to do with this uh, Conglomerate uh, in thirteen because that, that's and then in thirty three Roosevelt took us off the gold standard which <clears throat> devalued the money. All right, Jim, where are you calling from, by the way? Uh, Michigan. Michigan. I appreciate you calling in. Um, well, I think it would be pretty uh, difficult, uh, uh, you know, once elected on that ticket, you know, to ban the uh, to ban the Fed uh, to have what I would. I characterize as a long and healthy political career. I don't know. That's just me. But well, um, he said he was going to do it on constitutional grounds because uh, the Constitution of the Congress should may, uh, has the power to mint money. So he was going to do it on those grounds. Appreciate the call, Jim. Thank you for that. Yeah, uh, I might make a little comment yes, on that, and that is that um, the way things are today in the U.S., um, Americans have pretty much accepted uh, the um, the concept of imperial presidency. Uh, they, I guess what they really like here, unfortunately, is, is a king. Uh, the thing we fought a revolutionary war to get away from, most Americans like that idea now. They, they, vote, they vote a president, and then they want him to be king. They want him to make uh, sweeping executive decrees. But in a strict reading of the Constitution of the United States forbids the president from doing those things. If I were elected president and I followed the Constitution and I wanted to get rid of the Federal Reserve, I'd have to make a speech. I'd have to say, look, I want to get rid of the Federal Reserve, but as president, I do not have that power. Only the Congress has that power, and possibly the, uh, the Supreme Court could declare the institution as unconstitutional, but as a president, 
The president is merely supposed to carry out the orders of the Congress, and people have forgotten that. Uh, let's go to the phones one more time. Shane, you're on with Edward Griffin. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Uh, great guest, and I'm familiar with his work. I'm just wondering if he could comment on the faces of the presidents that are on our bill. You know, we have Lincoln, and we have um, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin. Of course, it wasn't the president, but is there any cryptic message on, uh, on our money in that regard? <laughs> in other words, those that, that are against central banking. Those that support the, uh, the the Fed get on, and those that oppose are, are left off. Is that the idea? I don't know. I think Jackson's on uh, on uh, one of those denominations. Jackson's so. on the twenty. Yeah. Lincoln's on the five, and I don't yeah. know anything about Alexander Hamilton, to be honest with you. I'm just wondering if there's any any correlation there between those that are against the Fed or on our bills. All right. Thanks for the call, Shane. Uh, Edward, I'm not aware of any connection on there on that at all. Uh, it could well be that I know that over the years there have been a lot of people tampering with the design of our money and um, you know sometimes they put cryptic things in there <laughs> but uh, I'm not aware of any connection between the uh, the selection of the presidents and the Federal Reserve Edward how would our lives be different uh, or better if we um, we went back to uh, governments minting the money um, back to a gold standard and uh, away from fractional reserve banking would it be better I think it would be fabulously better. I think the expansion of the economy would uh, perhaps not be as rapid as it has been in the past, but it would be close to it. But to offset the fact that it's not as rapid, there would be no collapse either. Uh, The fractional reserve banking system is what makes booms and busts possible. It uh, always creates a boom, and everybody likes that, and then the bust comes along, and uh, everything you've gained in the boom is paid back plus and i think we would be a lot better without booms and busts what we would have i think is a very stable i know we would have a very stable um, purchasing money a monetary unit and i think the best way to illustrate that is to to realize that if we had lived in ancient rome and we had a one ounce gold coin we would have been able to buy a a really nice uh, toga a handcrafted belt and a pair of sandals. Approximately that was the cost. And here we are thousands of years later, and we have a one ounce gold coin. We can use the cash value of that, and we can buy a really nice suit, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of nice shoes. So the value, the purchasing power of money, if it's backed by gold or silver or anything of tangible value that takes human effort to produce it, that monetary system would have a sustained, dependable purchasing power. And what a wonderful thing that would be, I think, for the world, to know that if you saved a dollar when you were 20 years old and and you could collect interest on it and your savings by the time you reach 65, it'd be worth uh, two, three, or four dollars. Instead of the way it is today, you save a dollar when you're 20 years old and you collect interest on it, and you get to 65, and it's worth three cents. In other words, uh, under that system, money, I mean, the way it works right now is the moment that the money is issued, it is it is debt. And uh, we need, to, obviously, to pay taxes in order to pay the interest on that debt, and we'll never pay off the principal. So we're, we're basically, we're, we're enslaved. That's a good way of putting it, actually. We're locked into the system. Of course, we can get out of it. Uh, anybody that wants to and really disciplines themselves 
can avoid debt or minimize it and get out of debt as quickly as possible, uh, you know, if people realize that it's better to earn interest than to pay interest, it's kind of a fundamental issue. But they don't teach that in schools. And as a matter of fact, here in the States, uh, all of the high school kids and the college kids are being given uh, credit cards by the banks. And the, and the school systems are encouraging that. So they're teaching kids how to get into debt, but they're not teaching them how to avoid debt. Edward, you are the, uh, the founder of Freedom Force International, which is really dedicated to um, helping us regain some of our personal liberties and, and fight the, 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 uh, the tyranny. Tell us more about uh, what your, your work entails at Freedom Force International. Well, thanks for asking that, Richard. That's where my, my heart is. That's my life work now. I came to the conclusion back uh, about the year 2000 or a little bit before, you know, it's no good just to know about these things, and it's certainly not enough to complain about them and wring your hands. You've got to do something about it. And uh, so I created an organization that I'm grateful as, as growing like Topsy right now called Freedom Force International, and we have members now in about 68 different countries, by the way, quite a few in Canada. And the, the whole purpose of this organization is, uh, is to recapture control of our lives and our system. We, we recognize that the reason things are going against the individual, are going against uh, personal liberty, the reason that government is growing as rapidly as it is over such a long period of time is because those who hold the power in society want it to be that way. They have a vested interest in it, and they've got the power to make things happen. They have control of what the sociologists call the power centers of society. And those would be things like the political parties, the educational system, the media centers, the labor unions, and, and the groups and organizations to which people belong and in which they follow for advice and for opinion and so forth. All of those power centers of society, if you look at them at the very top, they're dominated by people who believe in collectivism. They believe, in other words, in big, powerful government directing the lives of the masses down below. And there are not many of them, actually. Most people don't believe that way, but they're not in control. And so we recognize that the key to turning this around was not to complain about it, but to get in there and recapture control of the power centers of society. All right. And that's what we're trying to do. We'll take a quick time out. When we come back, maybe you can tell us how you propose that we do that. And, uh, Edward, can we just keep you uh, a few minutes past uh, midnight, which we're fast approaching? (laughs) Absolutely. You're on my favorite topic now. All right. Let's do that. How can we fight tyranny. How can we fight the new world order? It seems almost a Herculean task. Some of us think they pretty well got it locked down, but no, says Edward Griffin. He'll tell us how we can fight the good fight on the other side. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back 
to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. You can follow me on Twitter and uh, Facebook. The website's Richard Serrett, sorry, the Richard Show.com. Let me correct that one more time. Too many websites, I guess. RichardSerrett.com. RichardSerrett.com. And uh, the new one that I want to draw your attention to is TheConspiracyShow.com. TheConspiracyShow.com. Check out that site because uh, there's some uh, exciting news coming down the pipe uh, with regards to a television show, um, which I will host, talking about the same sorts of things. So if you like what you hear on the radio, you're going to love it on TV. G. Edward Griffin is uh, with us. A monumental work, to be sure. Uh, the Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. And uh, the founder of Freedom Force International, the website there, freedomforceinternational.org. So how do we take it back, uh, the, the institutions? Uh, do we start locally? Uh, how do we do it? Yes, we definitely start locally. We start uh, with our neighbors. We start with the people we know. We start to network with each other, and we support each other. And we we either go into existing organizations that we have an affinity to. We're not talking about infiltrating them. We're talking about supporting them and become influential in them, and hopefully someday soon to become leaders of them. You, you can't just, uh, you know, peer in the window and say, hey, let us in. You've got to deserve it. And let me give you an example. Here in the States, we've got two major political parties, the Republicans versus the Democrats. And, and we know that the, both of those parties are beholden to this very banking interest that we're talking about. And, and they manifest themselves in the form of an organization called the Council on Foreign Relations. We, we know that both parties are pretty much in the hip pockets of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations. And the trick is just to let Americans, you know, jump from one party to the other, back and forth, back and forth. And that doesn't really change anything because the major policies are always determined at the top. So uh, w- instead of just complaining about that, uh, we expect our members to pick the party that they're already in, if they're, they probably are, Republicans or Democrats, and to join the local political groups and become active and help them and say, hey, we want to work in these organizations. First thing you know, they'll be nominated as delegates to the, uh, to the conventions. In fact, I, I can't name them by name because I don't want to, I don't want to make it difficult for them, but uh, there's one major city that, of which I'm aware where the Republican um, group, the Republican Party group for that uh, county, including that city, uh, is now in the hands of members of Freedom Force, and it, uh, it wow. Didn't take uh, very, that's it didn't a success take long. story. That's great. Congratulations. Yeah, and so they control it now. Of course, it's a bitter battle because the other side is they didn't know what hit them. They don't expect this to happen. Do they expect they're the only ones that know these games? Do they expect the, the people like us to stay home, stay out of it? You know, people like us, we 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 don't want to get. Well, involved in organizational work. Oh, politics is dirty. You never catch me in politics. Oh, I hate politicians and all the excuses we have for not doing anything. 
what we expect people now is to get out of their homes, off of their big comfortable chairs, and out into the organizations where the masses are and become active in those organizations, become influential, and eventually they will become leaders. And we're seeing it already beginning to happen. So you want to send hundreds of Ron Pauls, in other words, to Washington. Yes. In other words, we have kind of a little slogan. It's an unofficial slogan or it's a motto. We say, why fight City Hall when you can be City Hall? So you're not looking to start a new political party. You're simply looking to, if I can use the word hijack, the existing one. In other words, infiltrate it and then with sheer numbers just take it over so that the, the, the Republican Party would once again become... A uh, you know a a conservative uh, small government uh, low taxes uh, uh, you know the party of Lincoln. Well, yes, and I wouldn't use the word hijack it. I mean, we should be in there anyway. Well, that we, in fact, the reason the the parties have been hijacked by collectivists is because those of us who believed in freedom were not defending the ramparts. We just let them have it. So now we just have to take them back, that's all. How do you do that, though, Edward, on a, on a grand scale, uh, when in many instances I, uh, I, I think that the candidates uh, have been sort of pre-screened and pre-approved, uh, and it uh, doesn't matter, as you point out, who you vote for, you're going to get the same end result. Because, exactly. Uh, I mean, how do you, uh, when you're initially trying to, uh, you know, go over the ramparts and, and, and uh, lead that charge, when that party has been locked down by, uh, you know, these, uh, these elite groups, how do you penetrate originally if, if they're, obviously, they're, you know, they're resistant to any outsider coming in, and they've got the media sort of locked down, uh, how, do you, how do you make that initial foray? <laughs> well, that is, the, that is the challenge, isn't it? Um, the bottom line is that it's hard. Uh, but it can be done. There will be plenty of opposition. There will be smear tactics. The people who are on our side will be uh, uh, will be treated very uh, unfairly in the in the media. They'll be demonized. Uh, there'll be all kinds of, of tactics used against us, and we've already seen that happen. And it's going to intensify when when the collectivists realize that there are uh, thousands and thousands of people who are now playing their game and moving into organizations and working for, uh, you know, influence in those organizations, they're going to fight like crazy, and, and it's not going to be easy. And I'd like to say one more thing, and that is that the strategy that we're talking about is not a short-term strategy. It's a long-term strategy. If, if people are looking for something that's going to... Uh, completely recapture the system by the next election, well, it's not going to be that way. No, this is generational. It's going to take a generation, yes. What are some of the platforms, Edward, for someone that's uh, you know, uh, involved with Freedom Force International? What do you stand for? What, how do you want to change things? Well, that's a good question, because we don't have a platform as such. In other words, uh, we don't express what we believe in in terms of issues, you know, like, uh, like uh, you know, get out of Iraq or anything like that. But we express our uh, platform in terms of principles, and we have what is called the creed of freedom, and it's a statement of what our ideology is, what our principles are. And that's the only thing we ask our members to agree on, is the creed of freedom. And uh, because we believe that 
you know, history is so uh, filled with examples of people who have risen up against some tyranny, some tyrant, and at great cost and treasure and blood, they finally throw over a tyrant, and then they wake up and find out that a year later they've replaced him with somebody just as bad or worse. And that's because they don't know what they believe in. They know what they don't like. They're very good on, on negatives, but they don't have a positive uh, a goal. And so that's why we have our creed of freedom. That is a positive statement of what we believe. And I urge everybody, if they want to give some serious thought to this important aspect, come to our website and read the creed of freedom. And it's not long. It's very simple. And I can guarantee you from experience that probably over 95% of the people of the world will read that and they'll say, yes, that makes sense. Freedomforceinternational.org. Planning any chapters up here in Canada? Uh, we sure would like to get an active chapter up there. We've got members all over the place, but we don't have any chapters yet. All right, let's go to the phones and uh, say hello to Tammy, who's been very patient. Tammy, welcome, and uh, say hello to Ed Griffin. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, as I've been listening, I've actually reworked my question, and I'm wondering what effect, like m- mostly what you've been talking about is the Federal Reserve in America. Obviously, as an American who lives in Canada, that, that concerns me greatly. But as a person who lives in Canada or anybody from any other country, I guess what, what effect would our membership have you know, to your primary goal? And what are we talking about as far as, like, I'm just very practical, so I like to have practical things to do. How does the Federal Reserve uh, affect you, Tammy, is what you want to know. Correct. In Canada, how does it affect Canadian society and our... Mm-hmm. Sure, good question. Or do we have our own? All right, Edward? Yes. Well, the Federal Reserve System does not affect, uh, or at least not directly affect, uh, the Canadian banking system or monetary system. But the fact of the matter is that your system up there is very similar. Uh, I don't know the names and uh, birth dates of the people involved, but I do know that both systems were modeled very closely after the Bank of England. They're both central banks. They both uh, are chartered by uh, their governments, and they both involve uh, private banks, uh, which create money out of nothing, uh, even though they have uh, the central bank is considered to be a government agency, just as in this country it's considered to be a government agency. I'm not really sure uh, what that relationship is there in Canada, but whether it's a government agency or not is not important. It's what they do and where they get their power. And the fact is that the, uh, the Canadian system is very similar to the U.S. system. They do um, they create money out of nothing. They expand the money supply at a rate faster than the expansion of goods and services. They have great uh, political influence over your candidates, a lot of things going on behind the scenes. And furthermore, the thing that's happening right now as we speak is that there's a powerful move internationally to bring all of the of the national systems, uh, Canada, the United States, Great Britain, France, Germany, Japan, all together in an international monetary system, which has been the goal all along, I might add, but they've been waiting for some kind of impetus to bring it about. Now it looks like they've got it with the with the uh, decline of um, the economies all over the world, now the move is, okay, we'll solve this problem now by let's all getting together and, uh, and create a new uh, regional and then international monetary unit, which will be 
pretty much the same as the old systems. It'll be fiat money with nothing behind it, but at least it'll be internationalized. And so that's the trend. So what's happening here in the United States uh, is kind of a, a forerunner of what's going to happen in Canada and everywhere else in the world. All right. Uh, thank you for the call, uh, Tammy. And uh, Edward, as always, thank you for uh, being so generous with your time. Again, the website, freedomforceinternational.org. And um, based on uh, your earlier comments, uh, might we expect uh, the movie version of The Creature from Jekyll Island anytime soon? Uh, well, I wouldn't say anytime soon, but it looks like it's going to happen. Well, I think, uh, you know, the time is right. People are starting to slowly wake up this, uh, to this, uh, uh, Edward, uh, uh, in large part to, uh, to your efforts. So uh, thank you on that front as well. Good talking to you again. All right. Thank you a lot, Richard. Good all, right. all right. Thank you. Crop circles. Are they a sign of contact? Are they a warning? We'll find out on the other side. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Love from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. How are you? I'm hoping you're enjoying this grand weather. Hoping it's grand wherever you are. I can't help feeling that uh, we're owed this uh, last couple of weeks. It's uh, it's the summer that we never had, really, isn't it? And uh, my tomatoes, finally, are, are starting to ripen. Better late than never. I always say, but they're about a month behind in any event. We're going to discuss now, which uh, something that is arguably, uh, well, I think without question, the most fascinating unexplained phenomena today, and, and that is the crop circle phenomena, these gigantic patterns that are etched into the middle of, uh, of farmers' fields that appear uh, overnight and in some instances uh, almost instantaneously with no evidence of anyone or anything having been uh, near the area. And uh, often the, uh, the chemical, uh, chemical composition of the plants within the crop circle have been altered in some very fundamental yet mysterious way. We're going to learn a lot about crop circles over the course of the next 45 minutes. Suzanne Taylor is a filmmaker and part of an international community of visionary artists, scientists and philosophers, geometers, educators, writers and farmers who marvel at crop circles. And her a documentary, What on Earth? Inside the Crop Circle Mystery uh, is now available. We'll tell you how to get it um, a little bit later. 
And uh, so we welcome crop circle chaser, Suzanne Taylor. How are you, Suzanne? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. Talking about my favorite subject. Circle chasing. Well, before you began this, uh, the research and the, the, the film, What on Earth, what were your, um, I guess, your, your, your preconceptions about crop circles, or did you have any? Well, you know, I am not a filmmaker who decided to do a film about crop circles. I'm a crop circle person who wanted to get the information to the world about what was going on, so I made a film. In fact, it's the second film I've been involved in about the circles, and I have become a filmmaker because I have a subject. Uh, And how do you tell the world something that you wanted to hear? You make a movie. So that was my impetus for doing that. And I've, I've always been, or for many years, I've been interested in um, our worldview and our consciousness and how do we think and what's wrong with the world? Why doesn't it work? And how could we think differently? And so all the kinds of things that might affect us in a positive way have been of interest to me. And I've done various kinds of projects um, to deal with the transformation of consciousness and self-development, self-awareness, all that sort of thing. Um, over the years, though, the crop circles have kind of drawn most of my attention. I, I've kind of left the other things behind because of all things that are going on in the world, I think that has the best chance to affect us radically. And as we are in great difficulty in the world, um, something that really makes a radical change is, you know, most desirable. Uh, and short of some horrible disaster that I think would change everything, this is a peaceful thing, I think, that could make the most difference. So that's why I've focused more and more on it. Suzanne, uh, speak to my friends listening in tonight uh, on, on the program uh, about the the intricacy, the uh, unbelievable, almost impossible complexity of, of, of these crop circles. Can you describe, attempt to describe, uh, for those not familiar with them, what, 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 uh, what a crop circle might look like? Oh, my goodness. Get online. <laughs> I don't mean get online in a long line. I mean get on the Internet. Uh, these are incredibly beautiful patterns uh, that show up in all kinds of crop, by the way. They've been in virtually everything vegetable, but the predominant ones are in grain crops and predominantly in uh, southern England, although they're in 40 other countries, uh, have been in 40 other countries as well. And, you know, there, there are these unbelievable things that look like artworks. They are artworks. And what are they doing in wheat fields? But there they are. Um, gorgeous patterns that are... Um, Mostly, I, I don't know if mostly is the right word, but I think mostly derived from sacred geometry, which is really the building block of the universe. Our universe is kind of constructed um, with sacred geometry uh, principles. And the the most beautiful crop circles, um, most of the most beautiful ones, actually there are some pretty nice ones that aren't sacred geometry, but they're kind of known for their uh, use of sacred geometry, uh, echoing this basic they seem to be giving us some kind of basic message about uh, who we are, what we're doing here, uh, returning us somehow to a more primal state in which we were not divided between spirit and matter. And there they are in crop fields, our elemental food products, 
uh, in some ways, and also landing near sacred sites usually. Uh, England, southern England is dotted with ancient artifacts, Stonehenge being probably the most famous, but there are thousands of stone circles all over southern England, as well as burial mounds and um, ancient um, civilization sites where ancient civilizations um, lived. And so um, the crop circles being concentrated there kind of goes along with this uh, return to the sacred, to the to what really was sacred in our world, um, when when we thought nature, you know, was was divine. Uh, so, have I answered something? Certainly, you have. <laughs> I you have. I've answered. And... The the thing is that they, I mean, they can be they can be very very small, but they can also cover you know acres. But the thing that strikes me about them, uh, or the thing that I find most striking about them, is that there is there seems to be uh, this mathematical precision to them and uh what are the things that you did on what on earth inside the crop circle mystery that i found fascinating and i I hadn't seen this in any other crop circle documentary is the way that you had uh, i guess geometers really deconstruct the crop circle to reveal the underlying mathematics behind them which really drives home the point that these things cannot be faked by men walking over crops with boards strapped to their feet well, indeed, you know, when you see these and you are impressed by how beautiful they are and how odd they are, what are they doing in, in crop fields? Uh, but you have no idea how complex the construction of them is. Uh, you know, for all, for all the public would know, you know, somebody sits down and draws a design and there it is, but it's not that at all. It's a very, very complex process of geometric construction where uh, the one we illustrate in the film has 50 steps uh, where the geometer with the compass and straight edge uh, will will make the design, and then uh, in order to get the pattern, if you're doing it on paper, you would erase a lot of those lines and be left with just the uh, actual pattern of the circle. And as we say in the film, you know, you do have to construct them this way. They, there's no overhead projection that comes down and shows somebody how to fill in the lines, so to speak. So how in the world do you go into a crop field? make this complex construction with all these geometric steps and then erase your lines. I mean, you can't do that in a crop field. So it rather defies the, uh, you know, the ability of people uh, to make these complex geometric ones uh, because how would they do that? How would they lay them out? Uh, you know, there's there's no way we know how they would do that. So. Well, there were there were a, a couple. There were two gentlemen who who um, hoaxers back, I guess, in the 80s, who claimed that they were responsible for all of the crop circles, uh, and they you know they basically walked into the farmer's field with these boards strapped on their feet and trampled down the crops. So, but explain uh, how you can spot or how uh, a crop circle uh, experts are able to differentiate between a man-made hoax. Uh, and and in the actual real McCoy. I mean, aside from the obvious, right. you know, the you know the, the incredible mathematical precision. But but talk to me about the differences. Yes, well, this is uh, the challenge actually. And I mean, it's funny with those two guys. They didn't even claim they made them all. Uh, they said they made them all in one county there, but that's even the secondary county. And the most of them get made in another county. And yet the world that was 1991. They came out with that claim, which made worldwide press. Um, Another story we tell in the film about how the Ministry of Defense in England was responsible for that press release, strange but true. Uh, but uh, they, they didn't, you know, they just said, oh, we made them all in, in this one place, and yet the world accepts the fact that, oh, it's a, it's a done deal, it got resolved, those two guys made them all. 
very odd how these things kind of in front of your nose are one way and yet you hear it another way or you accept it another way. But to your question of how you can tell the difference, um, you know, you, 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 you can't always, unfortunately, this is why the hoaxers are kind of like the terrorists of the crop circle world. They keep throwing you off and you do all this analysis and examination and speculation and you put your mind to, and then oh, it's a hoaxed one, you know, you've wasted all that energy. Uh, but the, there are, there are, the most telltale sign is something that we can't do on all of them because it's too expensive, which is just what you were talking about. It's the chemical and biological changes to the plants and to the soil inside the circles. If there were unlimited funds and you really wanted to know which ones are faked and which ones are inexplicable, you would take you would do these scientific studies, and they're very carefully done when they do them. You know, Lawrence Rockefeller uh, did some funding uh, that actually allowed them to do some of these tests. I mean, he's the only person with real money that ever contributed it to this phenomenon. And so they were able to do some very um, complex uh, scientific tests where they had control plants outside the circles and, and sampling all over inside the circles and the soil, different tests for the circles and the, for the uh, soil and the plants. And, and they do dis- discover in the laboratory that there are inexplicable changes to both the plants and the soil. You cannot account for them. We, you know, they just don't happen that way. Um, for instance, one of the soil tests, I think it's the only soil test because that's even more expensive than testing the plants, uh, but the soil test that they did on one that, in fact, you know, was inexplicable, the soil from the surface of the circle uh, had the same crystalline structure. It, first of all, is not found on the surface of the earth, and if you wanted to see, well, where might that show up? Uh, well, it might show up way down deep where the pressure from the top of the earth and the heat from the inner core would have created that kind of crystalline structure. And there it was on the top of a crop, you know, inside a crop circle. Uh, well, that's rather definitive. You know, if that, if that um, scientific analysis were able to be done on all of them, you'd know, you know, which ones were, were fake and which ones were mysterious. All right. But uh, short of that, you look for other things. Um, for instance, the... Let's, let's get into those when we, uh, excuse me, Suzanne, we'll get into those um, uh, things when we come back on the other side. I also want to pick up the point about the, the, uh, the Ministry of Defense uh, in, in the United Kingdom issuing a, a press release. So obviously they're part of the cover-up, but what are they covering up? You mentioned Lawrence Rockefeller. That's interesting. He, of course, uh, part of the, uh, the, uh, the UFO initiative, uh, correspondence with uh, Hillary Clinton while she was in the White House. Uh, as the first lady, and Lawrence wanted a UFO disclosure. So he's a very interesting player in all of this as well. Suzanne Taylor, filmmaker and crop circle enthusiast here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Suzanne Taylor is with us. We're discussing crop circles. The documentary is What on Earth? Inside the Crop Circle Mystery. And uh, not too far from here, around Georgetown, every uh, summer, fall, there are uh, some uh, pretty amazing crop circles, although they don't get a lot of media coverage, not surprisingly. Uh, But we do talk about them on this program. Uh, Suzanne, I want to pick up on a couple of things. One is the the, the press release that was sent out by the, the Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom. Uh, so obviously they don't want uh, 
uh, the truth revealed. Um, well, they also didn't want it known that it was the Ministry of Defense that sent it out because it went out under some name of a press agency. Um, MBF Services is where it, what was indicated in the press release. And uh, But then the crop circle people at the time, you know, checked it out. What, what is this MBF Services? And it turned out there was no such thing. And then they checked the address that it came from, and it was the Ministry of Defense. Now, that's all we know. I mean, why did they do that? It was very effective. Uh, it was a, it, the press release went all over the world, and prior to that, the world was very interested. There was a lot, you know, just as you would expect, what is this strange thing? What's going on in those crop fields? What, I mean, it was such a bizarre, and is, a bizarre phenomenon. Um, and it was making world press. But then, when this press release went out and said that these two guys had made them all, all interest stopped. You know, it just disappeared from the radar of the world. That it was solved, you know. And then, isn't that interesting that that went out from the Ministry of Defense? The other thing I want to pick up on is um, uh, one of the, uh, I guess the, uh, the the benefactors or the uh, the uh, funders of, of of the research is is Lawrence Rockefeller, who. Reminds me, you've seen the the Jodie Foster movie, A Contact, based oh, on the course. Carl Sagan movie, and and um, Jodie Foster, of course, plays uh, uh, the SETI scientist who's discovering, uh, who discovers this alien contact message, and her her sort of hidden benefactor is uh, a guy by the name of S. R. Hayden, who was played by the great British actor John Hurt. He's this eccentric, reclusive billionaire industrialist. Uh, who's sort of in fundamental in deciphering this alien's message, and 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 I just when I when you mentioned Rockefeller, that's who I thought of Im- immediately was the John Hurt character in Contact, because Rockefeller was also this is the late Lawrence Rockefeller, I believe, is it not? Yes. Oh, yes. He was very. Inst- I mean, he was really uh, um, pressure, not pressuring, but he was trying to work with the Clinton White House to get them to to uh, you know disclose the truth about UFOs. Really, the black sheep of the Rockefeller family, I'm guessing. Well, so I understand that you know he really was an ally to the paranormal, and. Um, you know, certainly wasn't the Rockefeller Foundation, but, you know, each Rockefeller had their own pile. And his, um, he was very generous to this whole paranormal world. What do you think the crop circles are? I mean, do you have an opinion? Well, you know, the only thing you really can say about them, we have no idea where they come from. We've never identified anything that could do that. So what do we know? We just have science fiction. And the only thing you can say is, it's not us. You know, we cannot account for this as being a human phenomenon. Strange but true. But when you look at the evidence, um, it's stranger to think that people could make them than that they come from another intelligence. All the evidence is that, that it's not us. Um, and that's really, that's as far as you can take it. You know, until they're visiting us, they're watching us, they know us, we don't know them. We're just, you know, we have to either wait for them to introduce themselves or just uh, not even need that to happen for uh, examination of the evidence, which would indicate there is another intelligence. And once that got into headlines, once we get contact for real into headlines, the world changes. It would be the biggest change ever in our world. Um, it wouldn't go away. It would be, uh, we would become one humanity in relation to the other Right now, there is no other, so it's just us. Hey. And, you know, we're free to be violent or, you know, hurt the earth, to use it, uh, to have no sense of, you know, 
appreciation for human life and the sacredness of the earth. But once we take our place in a much larger cosmos, we're humbled as just part of a much larger plan out there. Um, it will it will change everything. It will just change our fundamental perspective. And and have we ever needed a change more? No question. Is there a, is there a connection uh, between the crop circle phenomena and the UFO phenomena? Because in the documentary, there are a couple of eyewitness accounts of uh, um, moments before, in some cases, the appearance of this crop circle, or in some cases, hours before, there was this mysterious uh, uh, light flying at an incredibly high speed, defying all laws of physics. Well, if you call that a UFO, and I guess you would, uh, the more popular word or name for these things these days is uh, balls of light or orbs, um, but they are they they do they are spotted skimming over fields before a circle appears and you know again who knows uh there seems to be some relationship there but all we can say is well they're they and you know they 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 do um they are intelligently guided um for instance there's some footage where a ball of light is skimming over a field and some people are walking toward a crop circle down the uh, tram lines, which are the um, lines that the tractors and the fertilizers and what have you use in the, in the crop fields. And people are walking into a crop circle down these lines. That's how you walk into them so you don't walk over standing crop. And this ball just stops, and the people walk. Uh, they don't see it. it. It got caught on film. Uh, the people keep walking. The ball stops for them to pass and then continues. Uh, you know, there are things like that that have been caught on film. So there's something guiding these things, uh, or they are guiding themselves or some such. But it's all mysterious, isn't it? <laughs> we, you mentioned uh, paranormal uh, a, a couple of times in relation to uh, Lawrence Rockefeller and his interest. But uh, to talk to me about some of the paranormal activity that actually takes place within a crop circle. Yeah. You know, I should also say that we've never seen any craft it's not, you know, when we when we associate the circles with UFOs, I I, the only, I mentioned those balls of light because that really is the only association that we have. Um, there have been eyewitness accounts to these things, and they see um, a lot of disturbance in the air. There are light phenomenon that they see, not just the balls, but different kind of light phenomena. Animals go crazy, and then in about six seconds, these circles go down. Uh, and all the eyewitnesses will tell you that same kind of story. And there's maybe 50 eyewitnesses dating way back, starting back, in, I think, in the 40s. They have the first eyewitness accounts. Uh, but back to your question about um, what um, the strange things, that, that the paranormal effects in circles. Um, the, the electronics go crazy. Uh, cell phones don't work, and if you put them, you know, just hold them outside, of the actual circle itself, they'll work. And then you pull them back into the circle, they don't work. Um, there was uh, a story that we tell in there about uh, a television station came to film the circles, and they got back to the studio, nothing on the film, just white light. Never happened to them before, ever. Uh, batteries drain. People go in the circles with fresh batteries, they, they, they drain in the circles. Cameras get all... Um, you know, uh, garbled up, and it's the, elect the electronic part, uh, not the mechanical part. Uh, a lot of those kind of effects that, and you know, that would, if you wanted to know about signs of genuineness, well, you you know, you don't know when that will occur, but when it occurs, you you know, you're in, you're not in a hoax circle. 
Is there any type of, uh, of radiation associated with crop circles? Has anyone attempted to measure it? You know, they, there are people who walk around with these, uh, I don't even know what they're called, gizmos. We call them gizmos, us people who don't know what, what they're all about. And people seem to get some kind of readings on them and results on them, but that's never really been popularly delivered, and I suspect that that's not a big deal in the circles. The dowsers do get incredible results. Like if you um, blindfolded a dowser and he was walking along with his dowsing rods, he could tell you where the pattern changes, what have you. Uh, there was one one of my really good friends, a dowser, he was uh, speaking to someone or dealing with some skeptic who said, ah, dowsing, whatever. And he lives about 90 miles away from Circle Land. And um, he, he got in the car with this skeptical driver, and, and he blindfolded himself, or he was blindfolded, and he said, I'm going to lead you just by my dowsing rods to the formation. And from 90 miles away, he called all the turns, and he led him right to the formation. I mean, those dowsers are really extraordinary of how they can pick up on just about, it's like muscle testing, you know. What is that? How can that work? Well, it does, you know. And uh, so the dowsers, you know, go to town on the, on the circles. And uh, I, I, I can understand that, where the dowsing rods will, will uh, turn at critical points, you know, uh, different, different, you know, if there are different rings or different elements to the circle. Uh, the dowser could draw the circle after he'd be walking around. You know, he could tell you, what it was. Have you had a, a personal uh, experience inside a crop circle? You know, I'm not very sensitive to that sort of thing, and, and I haven't. My, my my brain goes into hyperactivity, and I, I'm just in awe. How could this be? Who could do? What could do this? Um, but, you know, it's it's me. You know, I, but there are people who are very sensitive. There are people who, in different circles, they can't get into them. The energy's too hot. They they approach a circle, they have to back off. It's too too much for them, um, or they get real you know physical sensations in the circles. Uh, but you know, different strokes for different folks. That's not my experience. I'm always struggling with with, with when trying to describe what a crop circle is to someone, and I, and I just um, actually thought of something that uh, for those maybe who if you've seen on National Geographic or uh, uh, you know a, a, a depiction of a Buddhist monks making those intricate sand uh, yeah. sculptures, the, the mandalas, is that what mandalas, they're called? Mandalas, yeah. Mandalas. Uh, imagine that in a, in a spread over, you know, maybe even several acres in a, in, a, in a crop that suddenly appears instantaneously with all its intricacy. Things that can really, in, in many instances, only be appreciated from the sky, from the air. From the air. Well, most of the circles, you can't detect the pattern on the ground, and uh, indeed, you have to be up in the air. I often do draw that comparison, not so much for the idea of what the patterns are, but for the ephemeral nature of them. Uh, we can't put them on museum walls. They're gorgeous art, but we they come and they go, and there's something very sweet about that, you know, with such a materialist world, and the fact that this does not allow you to do these materialistic kind of functions that we would normally do. Uh, with something beautiful like that. Why Southern uh, England, Suzanne? I mean, we, we do have them elsewhere. Here in, in Georgetown, uh, not too far from here, of course, there have been crop circles in Egypt and Poland and so forth. But the concentration in Southern England is, is quite fascinating. Why? Well, Why that's they... another thing we sort of have to speculate about. You know, by the way, when people don't know what crop circles are, and there still are some who don't, um, you know what I tell them? I ask them if they saw signs. 
Yes. Now, I have no, you know, appreciation for that movie. It's not on my top ten list. But it brought crop circles to the attention of most of the world. And so when you dealing, well, you say crop circles, they look at you quizzically. You say signs, they go, oh, those, oh, yeah. So in a way, that movie served us, at least familiarized the world that there was a, with the fact that there was a phenomenon. Right, although it, they a rather, used it in very, very odd fashion. Yeah, that rather negative attachment, a negative attachment as, as if these uh, crop circles were sort of landing signs for the alien invasion. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but nonetheless, as I say, you know, you just take a little bit of progress and you're thankful for it, so seems to be the way it works. There's no grand master, you know, gigantic revelation thing. We have to sort of realize what's going on. Slowly, 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 it's creeping in and we're getting it, you know. And then actually we own it. It hasn't, we haven't been hit over the head with something that, you know, is so incontrovertible that we resist it or we shoot at it or some such. But, you know, as we sort of get more and more of the picture, it fleshes out, and then it's like, oh, yeah, and then we've realized something's going on. And then that's ours forever, you know. It feels much more harmonious with the way uh, uh, the universe works. You know? All right, more on crop circles when we come back. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. If nothing else, the, the crop circles can be appreciated for their unbelievable uh, beauty. But there is, underlying that beauty, uh, a mystery with incredibly profound implications. Suzanne Taylor is a, uh, a crop circle uh, enthusiast and uh, a filmmaker. The, uh, the the documentary is entitled What on Earth? Inside the Crop Circle Mystery and the website is www.whatonearththemovie.com and you can purchase the DVD from uh, that site. Uh, they, better, they better go to What on Earth? The Movie because if they go to What on Earth, they got to buy clothes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you for the distinction. Yes, What on Earth? The Movie <laughs> Uh, dot com. Um, has anyone, uh, I'm guessing they have, but uh, has anyone cataloged uh, these uh, crop circles, uh, almost like the, you know, the Audubon um, uh, catalogs, you know, bird sightings, so that we have a, a way of checking up to see if there's any duplication? I mean, has there ever the exact same crop circle appeared anywhere, anywhere in the world more than once? Well, not the exact same, and yes, there have been what you're calling cataloging. They haven't done it lately, but in the earlier years, you you can find um, publications that would put pattern groups together. Uh, And what um, the answer to your question uh, about duplication is, there are certain pattern groups. There are, uh, for instance, fractals got introduced in 1996. Um, There have been um, what we call interference patterns, started with a moray pattern, if you know what that is, uh, in uh, 2000, I think. Uh, and then there have been a lot of those kind of patterns since then. So, uh, but the, the pattern groups where you recognize, oh, yes, that's another fractal pattern, oh, yeah, another fractal, but they're not the same um, uh, design. They're just the same principle being employed uh, no, they've never been an exact duplicate. In in the uh, early years, 
they used to get a lot of five spots on the dice. And um, why well, I'm saying that, they, they were like five spots on the dice with a central circle bigger than the four satellites that were equidistant, you know, around them uh, in a square pattern. And, uh, and then, the, then, then they started to get some with rings through those satellites. So you'd have the dice with, the, with, with a ring around um, the, 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 the four uh, corner corner die, uh, lots of those. Um, in fact, we speak in the film about this incredible discovery that was just made a couple of years ago, which is that um, there's a certain ge- geometric uh, trick uh, that h- hardly was in the geometry literature. There were about six examples of it in the geometry literature, and um, what someone just thought, oh, I'll take a look at those uh, five spots and see if they do that same trick. And son of a gun, he found 50 of them, all different, uh, because none of them are exactly the same. They're just, you know, bigger, smaller, you know, further away, whatever. And every single one of them did this same geometric trick. And so it kind of demonstrated that right from the beginning, because I think these were, the, these were most predominant in uh, the 80s, actually, um, and right from the beginning, there was a geometric sophistication, even when the formations were much simpler to the eye, you know, than they are now. There was an incredible geometric sophistication to them because there's quite a little geometry trick that's employed there. I think you see the film, you can get more about that. Are they getting more complex uh, as the decades move on, or are they getting um, uh, less complex? Well, I guess you could say... More or less, they were getting more and more complex uh, for some years, although, boy, there are some from the early years that are still just stunners. Uh, But if you look at the overall situation, I guess you would say that they've complexified, they get bigger. Uh, and and you know more more elements, more fancy stuff, you know, but. In fact, over the last few years, I wouldn't say that that has been the situation. They are very complex and, you know, very uh, multidimensional and, you know, interesting and whatever, and, and different each year. But I wouldn't say the last few years they've gotten actually more. They seem to have plateaued out. I mean, how much more complex could they be, really? Indeed, they are indeed. just incredibly um, you know, detailed designs. But you mentioned, um, you know, the introdu- introduction of, of fractals. Uh, I'm wondering if it, the in, the intelligence behind uh, these these crop circles, whether they're extraterrestrial, whether they're interdimensional, yeah, um, whether they're you you sense that there is a, a deliberate a, a dissemination of information that uh, that needs to be, I guess, appreciated. As, as, a, as, a, as a whole. In other words, you can't just take a snapshot. You've got to go back to the beginning because it's sort of layer upon layer of information that's coming at us. Well, I don't think it adds up to anything, to be honest with you. And here we're in speculation, and people do think that, you know, and they look for that. I don't think so. I think what they're doing is uh, demonstrating that they exist, that there is other intelligence, and they just bombard us with evidence of it. Um, individual crop circles have lots of interpretations to them, the, the, the more complex ones, from many different fields, of different fields of science and of anthropology and of um, astronomy and what have you. Uh, any individual complex circle will really be, um, you, you really have to uh, have the participation of people in many fields of endeavor who submit the information to you. Oh, this demonstrates something in my field. Oh, this is something in my field. 
But I think when you put it all together, what all you get is, oh my gosh, why don't we really recognize that something very intelligent is going on, that we are not the only intelligence. And uh, my speculation is that that's what the whole uh, situation is and the point of what they're doing is. And if they wanted us to know something, you know, specific, um, Look! Look how look! Look what they can give. I mean, they could write it out in English. <laughs> it's funny. I was just thinking. I was but, sort of contemplating the the prospect of uh, sort of the crop circle equivalent of of Bletchley Park, the, the Bletchley Park codebreakers during the Second World War. You know, trying to to break the yeah, German Enigma so. machine. <laughs> well, we All had right. a couple of binary code messages, which are rather startling. They just look like squiggles, and people who know binary code have been able to decipher them very precisely. All right, listen. And uh, there's somewhat warning signs, you know, watch out uh, before it's too late, that sort of thing. Ah, okay, let me pick up on that when we come back. Suzanne Taylor, what on earth inside the crop circle mystery? Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Next week on the program, of course, just in time for Dan Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. We'll talk about the dark side of Freemasonry on the program. Right now, Suzanne Taylor is with us talking about uh, crop circles. And you mentioned binary code, uh, a crop circle which seemed to be in binary code. Now, was this the the crop circle near a Chilbalton radio telescope? No, that was not. That was another situation most fascinating. I was one of the... I, I think I... I might have been the first person in that. If it wasn't the first, it was the second. Uh, I was actually on my cell phone in that crop field calling the other researchers, telling them, you've got to come here. And I was telling them how to climb over the fences and uh, go through the barbed wire. <laughs> it, was, it was hard to get to. Uh, but, you know, that's a story in itself. I didn't tell that story in the movie. We show the circle, or it's not even, it's a square, pa- it's a rectangular pattern. Uh, do we have time to talk about that? On the I've show? got that's about. I've got the about. The most fascinating thing that's ever happened in a crop. Field. I've got about four minutes. What can you can you do? Uh, with well, we sent out a signal in in 1976 that Carl Sagan was associated with the Arecibo message. Yeah, to celebrate the world's largest telescope being created at Arecibo, and they weren't expecting an answer. And the, the message included information about Earth. Uh, we were the third planet from the sun. We were made of carbon. How big we were. What our population was. Blah blah blah. A lot of information. Oh, oh yes, that was in binary code. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, son of a gun. Okay. And uh, so then... I'm not um, just a pretty face, came, Suzanne. We, we got this crop thing that looked exactly like that, except there were changes in it. So the, the creature that sent this back to us, our human was in ours. Well, we got something back that was a large head, about three feet tall. It was silicon-based. They had three inhabited planets in their solar system. So the information was changed. I forgot about that being binary code. Uh, and, um, and it was like, oh, my. And, and, you know, when you're in this, it was just squiggles. Boy, what was it? You, you had no idea. And even I, you know, when I saw the whole thing, I would have had no idea. But we got smart people out there, and they said, wait a minute. That looks like that Arecibo message coming back to us. So, and had other elements in it too that were just fascinating of the right. parallel between what got sent out from us. It's almost and as what if it was a, a, a response to the Arecibo message. One crop circle seemed to represent some sort of a face, a humanoid type face, that and the was other. In the same field, and that came, I think, a week earlier, ah. and it looked like that face on Mars, and that was done ah. in dots. You know the way uh, they, they like do pixels, uh, newspapers, yeah. that they're all little dots. 
And again, you're in that one, and you just got a bunch of dots. What in the world could it be? But when you got above it, you could actually see that it was a face. And wasn't wasn't the other crop circle something that resembled a radio transmission that SETI had sent from the, the Arecibo? Well, that was part of what um, the Arecibo one went out with the symbol for Arecibo. And this came back with a crop circle in it that had appeared the year before in that field, which is by the largest radio telescope uh, in England. Remarkable. Listen, uh, how... Uh, um, is there, are, are there plans for a theatrical release, a release, or has it been released theatrical? I'll tell you the most interesting thing. I'm going to be, uh, I, we're hoping, I, I, no, I want to get it on television. More people will see it there. It's too personal a film for a theatrical release since I'm not Michael Moore, and it's my little personal film, and I'm, you know, telling you this story, but who am I, you know? Uh, maybe you'll make me famous, who knows? But I have an audition tomorrow for Ryan Seacrest uh, from American Idol doing a new show to make your dreams come true. And I wrote an essay. My dream is that the crop circle should become well-known. And they've selected me. And I'm, I've got a half hour on camera with them tomorrow uh, where they're going to you know, qualify me to go on the show. So keep your fingers crossed. That oh. would be fabulous for this film. Absolutely. Well, let's hope. And uh, again, it's What on Earth Inside the Crop Circle Mystery. Uh, com, and um, I urge people to uh, to get a copy and look at it and if you haven't seen a crop circle uh, as you point out Suzanne there's uh, just uh, countless com is a wonderful site that you can see that they, they track them as they come in you have to pay to see the previous years but the current year you can see for nothing Terrific. Suzanne, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. A wonderful time I had. <laughs> All right, Suzanne Taylor. What on earth inside the crop circle mystery? All right, uh, a few minutes remain in the program. I just want to remind you again that you can follow me on Twitter and uh, on Facebook. It's, uh, I believe it's the uh, fans of the Richard, uh, or the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett or uh, the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett uh, fan club or something like that. That's the Facebook and then Twitter, just uh, Google Twitter plus my name, Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Uh, and I also re- want to remind you about uh, the websites. RichardSerrett.com is kind of handy because once you're there, you can find out what's coming up on the next week's uh, program. If you need past show information, let's say, for example, you missed last week, uh, when where we talked about 9-11 for the full two hours, and uh, uh, you want to listen to that audio, it's there. Uh, you want to find out uh, the name of an author or an expert or their website, all of that information is there. And the other website, that's richardserrett.com. The other one is a new website. It's called theconspiracyshow.com, and I want you to log on there and check it out and keep checking back because uh, there's a, a television show being developed in fact, we shot the pilot uh, yesterday or Saturday, and we're very excited about it. And we're hoping that this thing is going to be a home run. We're uh, we're hoping it's going to go international. And uh, but in the meantime, it's um, it's going to be a, we- a webcast, uh, maybe once or twice a week, and it'll be a, a three-hour show available, so you can see. Um, you can see the guests, you know, that I'm talking to. You can see me. You can see what we're talking about. We have panel discussions. We have paranormal experiments um, on this webcast, theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, check it out. And uh, as uh, we progress with this project, there'll be more news up there. And uh, the, the pilot that we shot on Saturday, tremendous show. 
Uh, we talked about uh, the rise of the Fourth Reich. We talked about we talked about UFO disclosure. We we uh, conducted a past life regression on the air. We had a, a, an amazing um, and civil uh, discussion about 9/11 uh, and controlled demolition. All of that uh, it'll be available on theconspiracyshow.com. It'll stream on there in a couple weeks, and thereafter we're hoping that there'll be live webcasts maybe twice a week three-hour shows it'll be terrific and uh, uh, i hope you'll be on board for that as well all right thank you to uh, dan ellison my uh, very capable um, technical producer who is flying this vessel through the night and uh, always want to hear from you wherever you are from maine to minnesota from thunder bay to the carolinas you can get a hold of me at uh, the conspiracy show or conspiracy show at am740.com, conspiracy show at am740.com. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops, move over Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.